we are here today and we are studying the book of Revelation because there are those who are saying in this town, they are saying that the book of Revelation is But au contraire, say we, for you see, the word revelation itself means that something has been revealed. revealed. Absolutely. And what's been revealed? Well, Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, it says the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's going to be Jesus who is revealed. It's a revelation from him, but it is also revealing him. Let me read the rest of the verse. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bond servants the things which must soon take place. Uh, We're studying this in part because this is something that he wanted to show you. He wants you to know this. And so we are studying this. And God so wanted you and I to read this book that he promised that for those who would take the time to read this book, that they would receive a very special blessing. blessing. And that blessing is found in Revelation chapter 1, verse Revelation chapter 1, verse 3. Let's look at it. Blessed is he who reads, and I've underlined that, and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. So this is the only book of the Bible where God says, read me, I'm special. It says, I want you to heed it, I want you to hear it. It would be hard for you and I to believe in a God who would say all of that and then turn around and say, but you're never going to understand it. He wants us to understand it. I believe that part of the blessing of reading the book of Revelation is so that you and I could understand the time that we live in and so that we could also see when certain things are going on around us that we'd say, oh, it's happening just as the Bible said. And so I believe that that's at least part of the Bible or part of the blessing. Well, God knew that there'd be those going around saying that the book of Revelation is hard to understand. So to make this book understandable, God placed in this book its very own outline, which is found in Revelation chapter verse, Revelation chapter one, verse 19. Let's look at it. John is told, therefore, write the things which you have seen, first division, and the things which are, that will be the second division, and the things which will take place after these things. Three divisions in the book of Revelation. The first division, John is told, write the things that you have seen. So what has John seen up to this point in this book? Well, verse 13 tells us, in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, and it gives a description of Jesus as he would be encountered now, we would say in his eternal glorified state. And so that's what John has seen. But then he's told, write the things which are. Now, the things which are will pertain to the time period that you and I will call the church age, which is found in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Jesus dictates seven letters to seven churches. And now these churches literally existed. The things that he writes about literally took place. But what we found as we went through them is that these churches, in their order, will lay out 2,000 years of church history. If you reverse the order of any of the churches, it makes no sense. But in their order, they lay out 2,000 years of church history. So when we went through, you'll recall we brought the church history books, and we started at the beginning, and we walked all the way through, and we saw that it really does lay out 2,000 years of church history because it's part of the prophecy of this book. But then he's told, write the things which will take place after these things. Well, next time we will see that phrase, after these things, will be in Revelation chapter, verse Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. Let's look at it. Everybody turn to chapter 4, verse 1. 
And it begins by saying, after these things, after what things? After chapters two and three, Jesus lays out church history. After these things, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me said, come up here and I will show you what must take place. It's not gonna change after these things. So here, and we've, we've said that uh, the Holy Spirit is so concerned to make sure that we don't miss that this is the third division in the book of Revelation that he begins the verse with the phrase after these things and he ends the verse with the phrase after these things. And we've talked about how this is a picture of what we call the rapture of the church. John sees a door standing open in heaven, a voice like a trumpet. The voice says, come up here, and immediately John is in heaven. And as we traveled through chapter 4, we saw that the entire church is there in heaven around the throne of God. The church goes up at this point. And one of the things as the church goes up, we found that although the word church will be mentioned over 20 times in the first three chapters of Revelation, but from chapter 4, verse 1, to the end of the book, there's going to be one word that's going to be glaringly absent, and that word is the word church. And the reason being is that the, word, is that the church is no longer part of the story, at least not on the ground. We are in heaven with the Lord. Now, at the end of the book of Revelation, after the story and the closing remarks, Jesus says, I wanted to show these things to the churches. So it is mentioned, but not part of the story, just in the closing remarks. So chapter four, verse one, the church goes up and then what comes down? And that is found in Revelation chapter verse, Revelation chapter six, verse 16. Let's look at it. This is the opening volley of that time period known as the tribulation. And uh, verse 16, it says, they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. And in the Bible, the lamb is always a reference to? So he who sits on the throne is God the Father and the lamb is Jesus. And they are surprised that this event, the tribulation, actually takes place. Well, as I've said many weeks before, many people are uncomfortable with God's wrath being poured out on a world that has been hostile to him Always remember that before verse 16, there's always verse 9. Everybody look back at verse 9. And it says, When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain. They'd been killed. And they're in heaven under the altar, killed because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. They didn't give up their faith, but it cost them their life. And we talked about that when we were there. So, you have this opening volley of this time period called the tribulation. And we've been walking through and we've been looking at the events as they take place on a worldwide basis, a worldwide scale. But when we come to chapter 11, and I want you to turn to chapter 11, which is what we're gonna look at today, we're going to look at things that become very specific. When I say specific, as we've been looking at things around the world, today we're gonna look at the things that take place uh, in the city of Jerusalem, in Israel, and we're going to look at some events that take place in the first part of the tribulation and some events that take place in the second part of the tribulation. But it's going to be very, very Israel-Jerusalem specific. 
So we're going to look at that today. I'm going to pick it up in chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. We'll highlight some things as we go. Then there was given to me a measuring, a measuring rod like. I always underline the word like in the book of Revelation because certain things happen and John will say, it was, it was like this. This is the best way I could describe it. Like a staff. And someone said, get up and measure the temple of God, underline that, and the, and the altar, and those who worship in it. Leave out the court, which is outside the temple, and do not measure it for it has been given to the nations. How many of your Bibles say Gentiles? That's actually a better way to say it, Gentiles, because that's what it's talking about. And they will tread underfoot, this is not a good thing, the holy city, we'll talk about that, for 42 months, for 42 months. So as we begin to unpack this today, the question is always, what do you leave in and what do you leave out? Because there's a lot. So I just want to give enough that we get some handles on this. But the holy city is Jerusalem. And we're going to find that the events that are taking place are for the most part on the earth today in the city of Jerusalem. John is writing and he's told to measure the temple and the altar, but don't measure anything outside the temple. And we'll talk about that as we go. It's also important to know that, that nothing in this indicates that John is, is, is having a vision here. He's actually told to go and to measure the temple. And uh, so the reason that's important, I want you to write this down. We're going to notice that there is a temple in Jerusalem. And there will be, in the very short period of time, a temple rebuilt in Jerusalem. So let, let me, um, hopefully, to unpack this without without confusing, but what we're going to talk about today is talked about throughout the Bible. And uh, so all the way back in the book of Daniel, when we talk about this, this, uh, this time period of the tribulation and the temple, Daniel tells us that the middle point of that time period, known as the tribulation, this is going to happen. So I'm going to read from Daniel, Daniel chapter 9, and it says, and he, and this is going to be the Antichrist, the guy that we've called the Antichrist, will make a firm covenant with the many, for the most of the world, for one week. Now, when it says one week, that word there is Shabua, and it means week of years, week of years. If I say decade, how many years is that referring to? Ten. Ten. We all get that. But Jewish people, and, and what we're going to find is in the book of Revelation, once the church is removed, it becomes very Jewish, very Jewish. So they didn't think in terms of tens, they thought in terms of sevens. So we would say decade, and that would mean 10 years. They said Shabua, and that would mean seven years. And so uh, it's one of the things that you'll see as you study through the, uh, in the, the Bible, you'll find that. So it's a seven-year period for the seven-year period, and some of your Bibles will even say that. But in the middle of that week, which is going to be three and a half years, right in the middle, he will put a stop to sacrifice. Now, I want you to underline sacrifice. That's important. And we're going to talk about this in a minute, but Jewish people in their religion have to be able to make a sacrifice. But the thing about making a sacrifice, that's not something that you can go do in your backyard. It has to be at a temple. And so for the past 2,000 years, they've not been able to do that. But there is going to be in the future, I would say in the very near future, couple of years at the most, a temple that's going to be rebuilt, and they're going to be able to begin to sacrifice. 
So he will put, this Antichrist will put a stop to the sacrifice and grain offering, and on the wing of abominations, I've underlined that, will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction. It's going to go on. One that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. He's going to do something at the middle of that seven-year period. It's going to desolate. It's going to be an abomination, we would say. And it's going to make the temple desolate, which means that you can't use it. And so um, until he gets his, which is going to be in a few years, three and a half years after that. So Daniel says it like that. But then Jesus, hundreds of years later, will say it like this there in your outline. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place. You want to underline that. In the Bible, the holy place is the temple. It's actually inside the temple. And you notice that Jesus is speaking about it in a future tense, in, in, a, in a future tense. This was thought to be allegorical, spiritual, you know, metaphorical, anything but literal. And the reason being is that the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. And there's been no temple for the past almost 2,000 years. One day in the future, very short period of time in the future, uh, there is going to be a temple. Halfway through that time period of the tribulation, this Antichrist is going to go into the temple. And the way that he's going to make it desolate, like you can't use it for their purpose, is he's going to uh, set himself up as being God there in the temple. Paul would say it like this there on your outline. Talks about he who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. So different parts of the Bible give you little tidbits. So, so you have this Seven-year tribulation, you have this temple that's going to be rebuilt in the very near future, and halfway through, this guy that we know as the Antichrist is going to go in, and he's going to do some things, uh, apparently uh, do some sacrifices, things that desecrate it, make it desolate. The idea is you can't use it because it's now uh, unusable for, for their purposes. There on your outline, I put a, a website. It's called the templeinstitute.org. This is not a Christian website. It's a Jewish website from Israel where devout Jewish people are planning and they're putting together all that they need in order to rebuild the temple which has not stood for the last 2,000 years. Again, the reason that they need to have a temple, you and I as Christians, we know that 2,000 years ago, God came to the earth as a man. Jesus came to the earth as a man. He stepped in our place and he paid the price for everything we ever did and everything we would ever do. And so he saved us. But if you're Jewish, you don't embrace that. You, you've, you've rejected that. So the only way that they can have their sins atoned for is that they have to have a sacrifice. And they have not been able to do that for 2,000 years. So if you come from an Orthodox Jewish background, this is a really big deal. So there's a push in Jerusalem, in Israel, among the religious Jewish people to have a temple so they can go back and begin to sacrifice. So we'll talk about that certainly as we go. The outer court, verse 2, 
It says, leave out the court, which is outside the temple. Do not measure it, for it has been given over to the nations. And uh, we're going to say Gentiles. So you want to write that down. And then we find that it's going to be treaded underfoot, the very last line of verse 2, the holy city for 42 months, for 42 months. Uh, We're going to say this in different ways today, but 42 months is three and a half years. So you just want to know that. It's uh, three and a half years. So what stops the Jewish people, now that they have their homeland, what stops them from today just building their temple? I mean, it's in the, the, the land of Israel. Well, the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, and the Romans came in and they destroyed it and caught on fire and, and uh, literally moved every, every rock. And so all that's left there of the temple is what's called the Temple Mound. And so the Jewish people are able to go not on top of the Jewish mound, but down at the bottom called the Wailing Wall. Let me just put a picture up real quick on the screen. There it is. Um, how many of you have ever been to Israel? Good. Then you'll notice that you'll remember this is where the, the Jewish people, they're able to go down, and that's where they worship God, and, or, and they pray right there at the Temple Mount. But they can't go up to the top. Now, how many of you have been to Israel, and you go up to the Temple Mount, and you remember the sign that says, you can't come up here if you're Jewish? How many of you have seen that sign? Good. I mean, it really exists. I mean, they're very serious about it. Jewish people are not allowed to go up to the top. So in 70 AD, Israel ceases to be a nation for for almost 2,000 years. But in 1948, Israel becomes a nation again, just as the Bible said. As you've heard me say so many times before, it's the only nation on the planet in the history of the world that existed as a nation ceased to exist as a nation for almost 2,000 years, and then became a nation again, just as God said. Well, in 1967, this is after 1948 when they became a nation, there's a war in Israel, and they take over the entire city of Jerusalem, which is where the temple would be there, and we just saw the, the, wailing, the wailing wall. But one of the things that happens is that although the Jewish government takes over the entire city of Jerusalem, what they don't take over is the Temple Mount or the Temple Mound. So let me show you why. Another picture. Because on top of the Temple Mound, which is on the top, this is huge, by the way. It's 35 acres. It's, it's massive. In the uh, ancient world, it was the largest place of worship in the world. But, but uh, there are two Islamic mosques right there on the top of that where the, the temple would have stood. So they realize that if we go in and we decide to build our temple on top, we're going to have to bulldoze two mosques, and they realize it's probably going to turn into the massive Middle East war that's, that's ever taken place. So, so they're waiting. So you have this court of the Gentiles that we talked about. And it's held that there will be a temple that's built there. This guy called the Antichrist is going to show up. And somehow they're going to figure out how to put the temple right there on that mound. And uh, the temple's going to be there, but probably knock down, probably not knock down the two mosques. So this guy's going to figure out how we can all go to our place of worship. So that's, that's the idea. That's why he's not measuring the court of the Gentiles. So that temple is going to be there. Well, verse 2 again, and it says very quickly, it says the last line, they'll tread under the foot 
the, for the holy city for 42 months. So when he comes in and he stops all of that, there's going to be a great slaughter there in Jerusalem, the Bible talks about, and they're going to trample underfoot that city for 42 months. Again, that's three and a half years. Well, Daniel chapter 9, as it talks about this morning, I'm just pulling out some verses from Daniel, we find that this Antichrist is going to enforce a treaty that allows everybody who wants to worship there to worship there and build the temple. And uh, yet halfway through that time period, he violates that, that treaty. Now, in Daniel chapter 7, it says this, and I put it there in your outline. It says, this king, and we're going to know him as the Antichrist, will speak against the Most High God, and he will hurt and kill God's holy people. That's the Jewish people. And then notice this, he will try to change times and laws. You want to underline that. That have already been set. The holy people that belong to God will be in that king's power for three and one half years. That's the last three and a half years of, of that time period of tribulation. So it says that whoever he is, one of the things that he wants to do is to change the times and the laws. So you and I are here, and for us, it's the year 2021. 2021 from what? Well, 2,021 years ago is when Jesus came to the earth. So we point to that. So we say 2021. Very interesting. If you're a Muslim, what year is it? Well, for a Muslim, this year is 1443. So why? Because they don't point to when Jesus came to the earth. They point to when Muhammad was here. And so in, in Muslim cultures, they, they, they would say it's, it's 1443. So you have in our country and in Jerusalem and Israel, you have a certain set of laws. And uh, their law is very much like our law. Much of our law was based upon the Old Testament. But Muslims have a different law that they want to enforce around the world and that law is called Sharia, Sharia. So many hold that this one who's going to be the Antichrist is going to have at least an Islamic background and, and for more reasons, and we've talked about some of those, and one of the things that he's going to try to do is to change times and laws. Well, we might see a little bit more of that as we... Did you at least find that interesting? Okay. So again, we've been looking at things from the global perspective, you know, the first several chapters of the tribulation, but um, this is going to be in the middle to the end, but something else has been going on in Israel from the beginning of the tribulation to the middle, and uh, we're going to talk about that there in Jerusalem. We're going to pick it up in verse 3, verse 3, and it says, and I will grant authority to my two witnesses. And they will prophesy for, and you want to underline, 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. So when it says two witnesses, uh, the word witness in the original language is the word martis, from where we get the English word martyr. And that's ultimately what's going to happen to them. Write this down. Their ministry, whoever these two witnesses are, will cover the first half of the tribulation. And we'll see that as we go. Um, verse 4. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands before the Lord of the earth. 
Let me read that again. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Now, um, one of the things that this is a whole sermon in and of itself. If you come from a Jewish background, you would recognize that that comes from Zechariah chapter 4. I'll just tell you the punchline. Please go back and read it later on. If you have a car and you drive that car and you run out of gas, you have to go ahead and fill the gas tank back up. What it's talking about there, and it's very clear, you can read it, that these are going to be perpetually filled. They don't have to be filled up. So whoever these two witnesses are, they're going to be perpetually filled, perpetually empowered, and perpetually protected until their ministry is done. Now let me also just go back to, to verse um, 3 and talks about their ministry. And we underline it says 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. What I want to say there, from the time the church goes up in chapter 4 to the end of the book, Revelation becomes very Jewish. Now, you and I, we have a calendar. Some months have 31 days, some months have 30 days, and then some have 28 days. And so one has 28 days. In the Jewish calendar, all, all months have 30 days. It's just 30 days. So if you take 1,260 days and you divide it by 30 days, 30-day uh, months, it comes out to 42 months or three and a half years. So when it talks about 1,260 days, or it talks about three and a half years, keep in mind that that's going to be on the Jewish calendar. Make sense? So he's going to say it different ways, but just so that we, we don't miss it. All right, so verses 5 and 6, the plot thickens. If anyone, these are the two witnesses, if anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouth. And this is not bad breath. This is something more. <laughs> fire flows out of their mouth and devours their enemy. If anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. So we notice that. These have the power to shut up the sky, underline that, so that no rain will fall during the days of their prophesying, which is going to be three and a half years, at least there in, in uh, Jerusalem. And they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood, I've underlined that, and to strike the earth with every plague, I've underlined that, as often as they desire. So the question is, who are these two witnesses? It does not tell us. It does not tell us. But there are some interesting clues, and I wouldn't say emphatically that this is who they are, but this is some interesting clues. Uh, many hold that one of them is Elijah. Elijah, and you want to write that down. The book of Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament, and it ended with this little verse. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. You want to underline dreadful day of the Lord. The great and dreadful day of the Lord is referred to as the last three and a half years of the tribulation. So whoever this Elijah is, he's going to have to come back. If you grew up in church, uh, you were taught that, that John the Baptist came as an Elijah proclaiming, proclaiming that, that Jesus was, was here. And so many hold that, yes, he was a type of Elijah in the spirit of Elijah, but that Elijah has to literally come back. And many hold that that's Elijah there. So that's at least one perspective. Many hold, you want to write this down, that the other one is Moses, is Moses. And we'll talk about that. So let me read verses 5 and 6 again. 
it says, if anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouth and devours their enemy. So if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. These have the power to shut up the sky so that no rain will fall during the days of their prophesying, and they have power over the waters to turn, turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. So here's why some hold that one is Elijah and one is Moses, because of the, the miracles or, or the things that take place. So there in your outline, fire-devouring enemies is attributed to Elijah. Anyone write that down? And you can read the story in 2 Kings chapter 1. It's a fascinating story. It takes the whole chapter. It's, it's a great chapter. Another one is stopping the rain. Well, that's attributed to Elijah. And you can read that story in 1 Kings chapter 17 and 18. But James says it like this, and I put it on your outline. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months which would be interesting because that's the time of their ministry. And so if this is Elijah, then, then that, that's why they would hold that. And then turning water into blood, uh, that's attributed to Moses. And you want to write that down. And hopefully you've seen the movie, The Ten Commandments, and uh, you'll see that. <laughs> Isn't that an interesting movie? I mean, how many of you have seen the movie, The Ten Commandments? So Moses is 40 years old. He goes to live in the desert for 40 years. And he comes back 40 years later, and he still looks like he's 40 years old. That, so only in Hollywood. So when it talks about plagues, plagues, well, Moses is the one that God used to bring the plagues. And so you'd write Moses there. So, so let me say that it doesn't say who, they, who these are. and People have different perspectives. And I think it very well could be these two, but it doesn't say. So I'm just sharing some things that are interesting, but it doesn't tell us. Well, verse 7 when they have finished their testimony, and I've underlined that, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and will overcome them and kill them. So this is going to happen halfway through that time period of the tribulation. The beast, and you want to write this down, is the Antichrist. And we're going to talk about him a whole lot more in chapter 13. And uh, so you notice he comes up when, when they have finished their testimony. It's interesting that nothing can harm them until their ministry is over. I didn't know a better way to say it, so I'll say it like this, but write, write this down. Notice you are immortal until your work is done. Nothing can harm them because God still has a purpose. Verses 8 and 9, and their dead bodies will lie in the street, and this is going to be important for us, of the great city, and uh, you want to underline the great city, which is mystically called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. That's going to tell us exactly where, where that is. So the city that they're in is the city of Jerusalem. You want to write that down. It's mystically called Sodom and Egypt. It doesn't say it's called Sodom and Egypt. It's mystically called. And that's because of the immoralities and the paganism and all the things that they let in. Verse 9, or verse 8. Their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, or verse 8, mystically called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified, those from, and this is important, the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies, you want to underline that, for three and a half days and will not permit their dead bodies to be laid 
in a tomb. If you've, uh, Jewish people who are religious, they bury the same day. And uh, in, in Judaism, because they want the body to decay naturally, uh, embalming is forbidden. And, and so if you've ever known a Jewish family and somebody passes away, they, ver- they bury them very, very quickly. The fact that they won't allow them to bury these bodies for three and a half days is a great insult to them. Uh, but it also tells you that they are probably Jewish because they are insulting them in this way. Well, the part that I wanted to really highlight is verse 9. It says, those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. And here's what we're going to notice, and you want to write this down. The whole world sees... The whole world sees. Can you imagine a hundred years ago, and maybe just for some understanding, people considered the book of Revelation to be allegorical, it's mystical, you can't take it literally. They look at a verse like this and they how is everybody in the whole world going to be able to see these people who've died being held there in the street for three and a half days? How could that even happen? Internet? cell phones, however, we can see it today. We can see it today. But a hundred years ago, so people who were a hundred, you know, a hundred years ago at least understand the struggle that they had about, well, how could that even happen? Well, now every one of us could see something like that immediately. That makes sense? So things are happening uh, just as the Bible says. So verse 10, and those who dwell on the earth will rejoice. Now, some of your Bibles will say gloat, and that's okay, but rejoice is actually the, the better translation. Over them and celebrate, and they will send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Those who dwell on the earth. And we, we've been talking about those who dwell on the earth. We call them earth dwellers. And those are the ones who, no matter what happens, whether it's God's goodness, it's his wrath, they don't want anything to do with him, there's a hatred there for God. And, and so, but we notice that when this happens, and you want to write this down, those who dwell on the earth rejoice, rejoice. And this is the only time when the earth dwellers, those who dwell on the earth, will ever rejoice in the book of Revelation. Because when these two prophets are killed, they think we finally won. We finally won. Look, they're dead. You can't deny it. They've been dead for three and a half days. And they celebrate and they send gifts to one another. And it says that they were tormented by these prophets. It was the message that the prophets were giving. They didn't want to hear it. And so it was tormenting to them. So verse 11 through 13, my favorite part. But after three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them. And they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell upon those who were watching them. I was getting, you know, hi there, kind of thing. <laughs> Verse 12. So they were watching. Around the world, they're watching. And they heard, those who are watching all this take place, they heard, they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And then they went up into heaven in the cloud and their enemies watched them. This is not an instantaneous event like, like the rapture of the church. They're going to stand up. Everybody's going to see that they are alive. A voice says, come up here, and they, they go up, and they're watching them go up is the idea. Verse 13, 
And in that hour, or at that time, either way, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell, and 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to God, the God of heaven. Now, uh, that's an interesting passage there. It says 7,000 people were killed, and uh, so the, the word there for 7,000 people is the word I should have put on your outline, is the word anoma, which means name, and it, it could mean that it was 7,000 well-known people, or it could just mean 7,000 7, people. Um, but when this happens, now keep in mind, up to this point, when these people were prophesying, and they were saying, here's what's going to happen, most people weren't listening. And yet, when they died, you know, they rejoiced, and then they stood up. And all of a sudden, people start to think, you know, as they go into heaven, it says there in verse 13, they gave glory to the God of heaven. Now, it wasn't everybody, but uh, apparently some people, <laughs> they begin to connect the dots at this point. And they go, there really is something to this. And so there, there apparently is the beginning of a revival. Verses 14, the second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. When it says that it's become his kingdom, it's become his, that's true. You're not going to see the full result of that for about three, three and a half more years. Verse 16. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God saying, we give you thanks, O Lord, God, the Almighty, who, who are and who were, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. And the nations were enraged, and your wrath came. And, and, that, and the time came for the dead to be judged, and the time to reward your bondservants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, those who respect your name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. I should have put this on your outline. I'm sorry I didn't. The word there for destroy, when you look at the original language, it means to corrupt. It means to corrupt. Uh, because when it says to destroy those who destroy the earth, it's not talking about, you know, you hurt the trees, so God's sticking it to you. That's not the idea. It's not an ecological thing. It's those who corrupted the earth are now going to be beginning to experience that destruction. Verse 19. And the temple of God, and you want to underline, which is in heaven. We're no longer looking at the temple there in Jerusalem. We're in heaven, which is in heaven, was opened. And the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. So, so here, here's what I, I, I want to highlight here. Something happens in the spiritual realm but the effects are here in the material realm, the physical realm. So you want to write down that something happens in the spiritual realm, but the effects are felt in the physical. That earthquake is on the earth, not in heaven. The hailstorm is on the earth, not heaven. But something happens in heaven, and it causes it to happen here. I, I love this, that things happen in the spiritual realm, but the effect is felt here in the material, in the physical. And uh, many of us have had the experience 
of having God intervene in our lives, something happens in heaven and we, we, it, it takes place, it, it manifests in the, in the physical. And just one quick story. When um, I was about 30 years old, which is four or five years ago, I guess, but <laughs> I, I was driving from Indianapolis all the way down to Birmingham, Alabama. And at that time, I had this uh, amazing town car. It was a Lincoln town car. And um, I was driving and I had it on cruise control. And I may have been exceeding the speed somewhat, but, but I was driving down the road, heading down to Alabama. And I was just thinking, and uh, the cruise control was on, and there had just been this massive rain. So I looked, and there was this big puddle there in the road. And I hit the puddle and water went everywhere. Do you know that when you're driving on cruise control and your car begins to slow down when it hits water, the cruise control says it's time to speed up? And so what happened was it spun the car. And I'm going south on this road and I'm spinning around like this, literally like five or six times. I remember looking, um, I was going backwards, heading into the, the center of the, of the highway where they had that concrete wall. I'm going backwards at 70 miles an hour. There's a guy who's coming. He's going the right way at 70 miles an hour. He's driving a pickup truck. And I could tell as he's watching me go backwards at 70 miles an hour, he has this horrified look on his face and he's holding onto his steering wheel. And I remember as I looked in the mirror and I saw that, that wall coming and I didn't know what to do. So I, I prayed a very uh, spirit-filled prayer. I yelled, help God, like that. And something, just before I hit that center wall, grabbed my car, spun it around, put me in the outside lane, and I just kept going. Just kept going. So at the next exit, um, I'm just continuing on, but the guy in the pickup truck, he's getting off, and he pulls up next to me and rolls down his window, and he goes, yeah, like that. <laughs> of course, I went, yeah, like that. He didn't know I had to change my pants, but, <laughs> but, but that really happened. Something grabbed my car. When I yelled out into the spiritual, something happened there and it manifested in the material. And I'm alive today because that happened. So... Find that interesting today? Good. Just know that you have a very big God. He has surrounded you with all kinds of protection. And that's why we walk in faith and we trust and we believe that he's going to show up at just the right time and just the right way and take care of our situation. With that, let's go ahead and close in prayer. Father, as we wrap this up, we see some things and we, it's, it's shocking to see that these things are actually going to take place. But Lord, you always leave your witness. You always leave somebody there to proclaim the truth so that people can see. And uh, we realize many will reject, but some are going to listen. And so we, we're thankful for that. We want to be like those two witnesses who live out our purpose and, and uh, represent you. Uh, preferably, we don't want to be killed in the way that they're killed, but we want to represent you in, in a way as we live out the purpose that you've given to us. And Father, as we go forward, we realize that things are happening in the spiritual realm 
on our behalf, on those who rejected, it's not on their behalf, but for those of us who are following you, it is on our behalf. And we're thankful that those things take place in the physical that you send from the spiritual. Father, for those of us who are here today, um, may we all be those who have come to the place where we know that we know that we know that we have received your free gift of salvation for here and for all eternity and, and your working in our lives. But Lord, for those who might not have received that yet, we look to you and we say, Jesus, I want you in my life. I want to belong to you. Thank you for giving me forgiveness. Thank you for giving me salvation. And thank you for giving me a new start with you. I want to know you. And he promises that if you invite him in, he will never leave. The Bible calls it being born again. It's a new life. It's a very different existence. If that's you today, he wants you to know that he's always wanted to have that relationship with you. Lord, thank you for this congregation. Thank you for their love for you, the things of your word and your spirit and their desire to know you better and to follow you. I pray, God, that you help us to represent you well in this time that you've called us to be. I pray that you keep us till we meet again. It's in Jesus' name that we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, God bless you guys. We'll see you next time.